Welcome to The Natural Selection, where this week's theme is death. Welcome back listeners to another episode of The Natural Selection. We were definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order, we have Naomi. Hello. We have Nick. Hello. And I am also Nick. Hello. Nick, do you want to tell the audience who we are? Yeah, of course, Nick. We're The Natural Selection, a group of taxonomists who want to bring their passion for nature into the wild. Each week we gather and wax lyrical about the natural world. In the first section, we'll talk about nature news and some interesting research from the past week. And in the second section of our podcast, we talk about a different theme and how it relates to flora and fauna around the world. This week's theme is death. Oh, thank you, Nick. Sounds ominous. How's your week's been? You had a nice time? Any good nature interactions? No, I had no nature interactions, really. Uh, me neither. I feel like I've been very locked down and in the rain. Yeah. As we speak, there's a spider crawling up my wall. I feel like if that's the best we can do in seven days, uh, lockdown has really taken its toll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not great. Well, I should probably ask a more probing question then. I've got something. This is a question and also a plea for advice from you and listeners. The most na- nature that I've been interacting with lately are um, uh, maggots in my kitchen. Uh, those kind that come in, out of your grains that, that are from moths, but they're like bigger than the moths themselves. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. How do you stop them? I feel like Berlin is famous for its moth problem. Yes. I lived with a guy who's afraid of moths and he emptied the flat and made us wipe down all the surfaces and spray with anti-moth uh, liquid. Uh, he then released a load of wasps, uh, oh which you can buy online uh which prey on the moths so he was virulently anti-moth but i feel like that might be a bit beyond what you're looking for you could just look at it as an added source of protein nick that's not against my morals but neither is buying a bag of parasitoid wasps <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm not sure i unless maybe is it like happening from a t- particular type of grain you're getting could you like buy from somewhere else or like store it differently maybe like in a jar or something or like yeah good question um so far it's in the past when i've had this problem you can usually tell because the bag is has their like little like sticky web on the inside um Mm -hmm. but i don't know where these ones are coming from yeah it's a nature interaction that i'd rather do without i think this week if you did have any suggestions for nick you can always find us on thenaturalselection.net or on our Facebook page as well under The Natural Selection. And we do always love to hear from you, whether advice on killing moths or any questions or anything you have, really. So, yeah, it doesn't have to be with murderous intent. You can just contact us anyway. Shall we move on to the news? Yeah, let's. Uh, we'll join us after this short break. We'll be back with the news. Welcome back, listeners. We're back with the news. We've been looking through the nature news of this week to bring you what we found. Naomi, you have perhaps the most topical news from nature that I've ever seen. Yeah, pretty topical. Although I'd say like adjacent topical. So like it's not actually about coronavirus. 
So my news is about sickness effects and tracking sickness effects on social encounters in vampire bats. So it's interesting. The reason I chose it actually is because it sort of harkens back to some of the stuff that I talked about last week in vampire bats. So this is produced in behavioral ecology. And what they did was they took out 30 female bats. They gave half of them a chemical that would induce an immunity response. So they didn't give them a sickness, but they made them feel ill, basically. And then they gave the other half a placebo. So I think it was saline. Then they put them back into the roost and they had proximity sensors on them. So they tracked how close they got to their other roost mates. And they found that sick bats tended to stay further away from all of their other roostmates. So they stayed further away from sick bats as well as healthy bats. And so it's interesting, particularly in coronavirus times when we're all socially distancing. It's nice to know that other social animals do this too. But it's sort of um, something, I guess, a caveat that the authors made in a review of the paper was that depending on the type of illness that it is this may not occur for every kind of illness because some things actually make people get closer together like different parasites have different sort of behavioral manipulations and things but it's an interesting sort of way to look at sickness effects and how this may limit social behaviors and help prevent spread of illnesses Hmm. that is interesting do you know why they chose bats I'm actually not sure. I suspect there's something to do with the fact that they're very social animals and they have a lot of social grooming and and these vampire bats in particular have like grooming and reciprocal altruism. So I think because they are a very tight-knit social group and I guess they can study them with these proximity sensors. Also, they gave them little sensors and they call them backpacks and I thought that was really cute. Did you say bat packs? (laughs) I didn't, but I should have. That's really cool. They think as well, it may not necessarily just be because they're kind of avoiding it, but also that like one of the effects of being ill is that you're tired and lethargic and don't, you know, don't move around very much. So it's sort of, it may also kind of be a side effect of of being ill that you tend to stay away from people as opposed to like a behavioral choice. But that's cool. Now, Nick, I can't help but feel that I've rubbed off on you. Uh, It'll be all right, Nick. Yes, my news today, Nick, my news this week is um, about Beatles. I'm very excited. Well, Nick, first, let me start off with our classic move on this podcast, bungling a Latin name. Have you heard of <laughs> the Beatle Fleodes Diabolicus? Oh, Fleodes Diabolicus. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know that one? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> well, it's a Beatle uh, and it's known as the even cooler diabolical ironclad beetle it lives in western north america and it's known in popular culture for being the beetle that can be driven over by a car and survive it's sort of like went viral in in recent months for being the indestructible beetle and it's known in the insect collecting world for breaking pins when you try to pin it to a board oh my god Yeah, super cool. Um, And a study just came out by some researchers in Japan and the U.S. working together. They're materials engineers, and they were basically trying to figure out how this structure is so strong. If you remember back to our Beatles episode, we talked a lot about elytra, which are that first pair of wings that 
most insects have two pairs and the beetles have transformed theirs into like a hard shell cover that protects their second pair of wings. And this beetle, they interlock both with each other and with the thorax. So it's like a 3D jigsaw puzzle as they close. And the way that they sort of connect all together, it's this like interlocking string of sutured joints that supercharge the strength of their shells. And I am not a materials engineer, as you can probably tell, but scientists were trying to see if they could use something like this technology to weld together materials of different types, like metal and wood, or uh, particularly, I think they were looking at metal and carbon, like nano, nanotube fiber that is used in aerospace engineering. Uh, because usually those are two things that you'd want to connect together, but they don't adhere well. There's not a glue that works well on both. So what they did was they analyzed this sort of like microstructure, and then they 3D printed like a replica out of different materials, and they increased the durability of the structures they're making in like, by two times. So um, as far as I understand, though, that interlocking means that it's flightless. Uh, now it can't open its electra to, um, to open its wings. So it's a flightless beetle. Exactly. Yes. Um, I do like the idea that uh, the researchers sat down and they thought they looked at the beetles and thought, well, we can work it out. It was a little help from our friends. Yeah. <laughs> what fun. I found news that I was immediately swayed by... The headline, some male fish use their tails to fan rival sperm away from eggs. How could you resist? Exactly. So this is from uh, Takeshi Takagaki of Nagasaki University. And what they were looking at was the dusky frill gobby fish, which is the Bathygobius fuscus. Uh, so it's in the Indian Pacific Ocean. And there's basically two types of males in this species. There are nest holding males and they sort of occupy a space between rocks and they encourage females to come in and lay eggs, which the males will then fertilize by releasing their sperm uh, over the top of the eggs uh, externally. But there's another type of male called the sneaker males. Now, these are smaller, but they have larger testicles and they well, they, they sneak into the nest and they ejaculate over the just laid eggs and swim away. And the nest holding males hate these sneaker males. Like they will chase them away as best they can. But the sneaker males, obviously being sneaky, occasionally get into the nest. So what's a nest holding male to do? Well, this is what they found. When they detect alien sperm inside their nest, they will actually start to flap their tails to remove the sperm. And this tail swishing on average led to an 87% drop in sperm concentration in the nest. The problem is, is it also removes the sperm of the nest dwelling males. So they have to sort of re-fertilize the eggs. But what they found is with this behavior that the sneaker sperm actually only fertilized 30% of the test eggs, even though they're actually producing a lot more sperm. So this sort of tail swishing is actually really effective at passing their genes onto the next generation. 30% still seems like a lot to me for, like, yeah, I suppose it's still beneficial because it could be more. Did they, did they do any sort of experimental evidence that like without the tail swishing? Um, well, what they actually found was that when there was sperm in, a, they did an experiment and they, what they tested was when there was sperm present in the nest, they swished their tails about 30 times more. Uh, than when they didn't detect uh, sperm in the nest. 
So it appears they are reacting to the sperm. I think I said the the, ab, uh, the tail swishing on average led to an 87% drop in sperm concentration in the nest. So it does have an effect. But I think that news does bring us to the end of this section. We'll be back in the next section to talk about death. Uh, we do hope you join us again. So yeah, we'll be back after this short break. Welcome back, listeners. So here we are this week to talk about death. This was suggested by Nick as it's coming up to Mexican Day of the Dead. Is that right, Nick? Um, it's, yeah, it's also known as and celebrated slightly differently as All Souls Day in the UK and in other Christian countries. Oh, fair enough. Um, I, I have to say, having grown up in the UK, the Mexican Day of the Dead looks a lot more exciting than <laughs> we ever celebrated it. But uh, as far as I understand, it's a way to connect to deceased relatives. Is that right? The way that I understand that it's celebrated in Mexico and near where I grew up in Arizona is um, it's a way of sort of offering food and and celebration and other sorts of little gifts to the sort of your, your deceased family members and loved ones to give them a chance to come back and visit with you for a little while. That does sound nice. Yeah. It sort of ties in something I found quite nicely. So when thinking about death, because I used to work in a, a medical museum, and I found one of the most amazing things is that every different culture will have a different way of dealing with death. And even within human culture, it almost feels innate that the way your culture deals with it is the right way and that any other culture is wrong. So quite one of the more jarring ones that people find odd if they're not from that culture is that in Ireland, namely, it, it's quite normal to sort of leave the deceased body in your house for a few days. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah, it would be fairly normal. Like uh, you would have the wake at your house and then you would leave them there, say, like in a, laid out in a room um, until they went to the funeral. Whereas in other countries, for example, in the Himalayas, where there are very few trees to be able to burn the body and the soil is too hard to dig and, and, and dispose of the body that way, they will do sky burials where they'll actually leave the body out to be eaten by eagles. And their belief is that these eagles will carry the person into heaven by eating them. But pitching that as an idea in England, sort of leaving Gran out for the foxes, most people would think that's that's quite inappropriate. So the way we react to death is quite interesting and quite cultural. And different animals actually have different cultural reactions to death as well. So one of the more famous ones you might have heard of is things like elephants. Uh, elephants, when they find a deceased elephant, they often find elephant graveyards, will interact with the bones. They'll often tenderly touch them or, or, or interact with them in some way. They will often stop and look at the bones for some time, even if there's nothing else in the area. Especially if it was an elephant they knew, they seemed to have special significance if they knew the elephant that had passed away. And there's close relatives to us, like chimpanzees. They've seen some amazing behavior with chimpanzees and mourning. So they've noticed that if uh, they're a very social animal, just like us, they, they interact a lot by grooming and things. And if one of them passes away, quite often those that groomed most with them will act very strangely for a few days and not interact as they normally would in what appears to be a showing of what we would understand as grief. But this gets difficult when you get into emotions with animals. Uh, and one of the flaws of the scientific method is that something is not true unless proven otherwise. And with things like emotions, it's kind of hard to prove that grief is existing inside a chimpanzee's head because they can't convey it. So we can't really fully understand the emotions that they have. But we do know that they do treat dead bodies with some sort of reverence, much more so than they would another animal's dead body. 
uh, including recently, they actually found one chimpanzee. She had adopted this chimpanzee, which had later died uh, from uh, lung disease. And after it died, she groomed the, the young chimpanzee's teeth and cleaned it uh, using um, tools. And they're not sure why, but this is the first instance they'd found a sort of the grooming the teeth of a deceased um, deceased friend. So maybe it was that idea of the preparation of the dead body, which is very, very common in human society as well. Perhaps the most surprising one for me, though, was crows. And I should really stop being surprised by crows. But there is evidence that crows at least interact differently with deceased crows and will behave differently around them. So if there is a dead crow, they will come and interact and, and sort of look at it. We don't really fully understand why. But one group of scientists, they did something. They put on masks so their facial expressions wouldn't affect the study. And they walked past a group of crows and they were either holding a dead pigeon or a dead crow or a hawk, which is a predator of the crow, or a hawk and a dead crow. So the dead crow and the hawk were both taxidermied, so they weren't changing their position, which would affect the behavior. But what they found is that these crows would react very negatively to people carrying uh, deceased crows. They would remember the mask in question for perhaps weeks after the study and would still hold a grudge against that person as if they were some kind of danger. So to test if this was just because it's death and predators and danger, they tried it with dead pigeons. Crows didn't care. They weren't that fussed about the dead pigeons. They didn't show any different behavior. They got a pigeon as an audience instead. And the pigeons didn't care about the dead pigeon or the dead crow either. They just went about their day as they would. So it appears that the crows do put special significance on their deceased relatives. Uh, Nick, didn't you tell us a couple of weeks ago about uh, you saw a crow killing a pigeon? Yes. So they're not going to care. But it strikes me as, <laughs> as interesting. <laughs> Strikes me as interesting that uh, the takeaway from this that they assumed that the pigeons not reacting meant that they weren't affected, but maybe it's just that pigeons are so callous to death. They see so much death around them all the time that they're just like, huh. Isn't that that thing? It's really hard to find a dead pigeon. Considering how many pigeons there are, you don't see many dead pigeons. No. It's funny because you said this to me, and then since you said this, I've seen several dead pigeons. <laughs> I don't know if proving? it jinxed me or <laughs> now like not not entirely whole dead pigeons <laughs> I have seen dead pigeons I did want to say Nick I, I had myself muted because I didn't want to interrupt your story and the beautiful I, you, the, talking about the chimpanzees grooming the other chimpanzee made me cry and then immediately laugh when you started talking about crows uh, <laughs> because crows really they, we all should stop being surprised by crows you're you're absolutely right they're really astounding mm -hmm. no i do love them and i love the the research that we do on here they always pop up in the most random of places yeah but it's not just interacting with other dead animals that sort of sets some animals apart nick you found that the death themselves can actually be influenced by the group yeah that's right um so Doing this research, this is one of the most exciting uh, research dives that I've done for recent in recent memory uh, was for this death episode. And one of the things that I opened a whole new door to, I stumbled across, I was trying to find things related to animal death. One of the first things that came up was animal suicide, uh, which I thought was a little bit dark for a, a full th fleshed out theme for our podcast today. But it led me down a path towards 
suicidal altruism, which is common among the eusocial insects in many different ways. So this is when one member of a, a sort of hive or colony will kill themselves in different ways that I'll go through in graphic detail in a moment to protect the sort of well-being of the hive. The most well-known one that, that, that one can think of off the top of their head is when honeybees sting. Uh, they leave behind their stinger and part of their abdomen in the thing that they've stung, which then kills them. And that's called sting autonomy. And it happens not just in honeybees, but in other bees as well, in wasps, in certain wasps, and in some kinds of ants. So that's a pretty common strategy for protecting against predators when there's something big around the hive and you want to get rid of it. You heard it really bad, and some of the workers will die. One of the really cool ones that I hadn't heard of is called autotysis. Have you guys heard of this one, or do you know what it refers to? No, I've never heard of that. No, I haven't either. So one of the things that does this is a carpenter ant, which you may have heard of. Uh, but basically, it refers to a physiological mechanism whereby an insect will rupture some of its internal organs and secrete a caustic substance on predators, which in common terms means they explode acid uh, from the inside. Why, when an animal does that, would you call them carpenter ants? I know. I know. Uh, but apparently this happens in ants and a ton of termites. Um, they call them the uh, terminators. It's <laughs> good. <laughs> but that, to me, that's pretty crazy uh, that there's that they can sort of like, I don't know how, if it's neurological or triggered by a stress response or something, but they just explode. Uh, so that's another cool one. Aphids have a couple of cool tricks up their sleeves. Some aphids will do something similar. They'll basically dissolve part of their body into sticky, viscous substance that traps uh, predators, which is uh, pretty wild. Think about that on a uh, in a sci-fi movie or something. Uh, and the other thing that they do is there are some aphid colonies that live inside of galls, which are like knots in a tree or plant stem that have uh, that sort of it's like a scar tissue in a plant that grows much larger than it would normally grow, and the aphids live inside the gall. And it's super protected from the outside, and there can be up to like a thousand aphids in these colonies, and they're quite, they can be quite numerous. But sometimes the gall will get damaged, either by predators or by accident, and the aphids need to encourage the plant to fix the gall. And some ways that they do that is just by redirecting plant growth, and I'm not sure exactly the chemical pathways there, but it doesn't hurt any of the aphids. But another way is by doing this sort of secretion of sticky substance, similar to what they do, like I've just described with the predators. But in this case, they're secreting it into the sort of damaged part of the gall. And sometimes they can end up stuck in the secretion and become part of the defensive structure. So their like exoskeleton gets melded into the gall. So it's basically like they're building the walls of their castles with the, their own corpses, which is pretty wild. That's galling. <laughs> I'm glad that we have the running pun commentary. Uh, I just have a couple more for you guys. Hopefully this is as exciting for you as it is for me. Uh, I was really thrilled by this research. So there's also something similar in ants. And this wasn't what I was expecting. Uh, I was thinking something like this aphid situation where they, in the process of 
sort of making the structure kill themselves. But what happens with this is that there are some forest-dwelling diurnal ants that are predated upon or attacked often by night-dwelling ants or nocturnal ants. The, these nocturnal ants are really good at finding and like invading them at night and killing them. And to protect them against these other ants, what they do each night is they send out, and it's somewhere between one and eight worker ants at random, but it's never zero, apparently, according to the research that's been done on this. There's at least one, sometimes up to eight, that leave the nest at the sort of end of the day and bury the nest from the outside and then never return. They like don't come back in the morning. They are eaten by other ants or other predators in, or get blown away in the night. And they just sort of seal in the colony. And then in the morning, the inside, the, the worker ants on the inside will dig themselves out. And the coolest thing about this that I thought was that apparently these ants don't try to get in when they're done. They keep burying the colony up to an hour after it's like been sealed in a way that like they brush sand over it. So it hides the whole thing from completely from sight. And it doesn't look like an anthill at all. And in the morning, the ants inside dig themselves out. Oh, my God. Isn't that crazy? Can I say the craziest thing of that was that you said that they might get blown away. (laughs) I know. That's what this research I was reading said. Like, apparently the night winds in this area are quite strong. Um, But, okay, there's, there's, I just have two more and they're quite short. There are certain types of honeybees and ants that practice what's called altruistic self-removal. And this is when they get sick or when they get exposed to fungal parasites. Ants will spontaneously decide to leave the nest and never return. And then they die several days later. Researchers will use carbon dioxide to like fake an illness in an ant to make the ant feel sick, even when it's not actually sick. And these ants also will leave the nest and let themselves die from starvation outside of the nest because they think they're sick. Uh, so it's a way of keeping a, an epidemic from spreading around a population. And I'm not going to make any parallels. And then the last thing. Would, before, is, sorry, uh, would you say that would be uh, an antifungal behavior? <laughs> Finally, uh, we have the death grip bite uh, that's common in stingless bees. They do a similar thing to what sting, stingful bees, bees with stings do, uh, but with their jaws. So they'll bite onto something and not release. And sometimes uh, it can result in their decapitation with the jaws still attached. Oh, my. Yes. So, uh, yeah, uh, to wrap up, insects are wild. Um, <laughs> I'm really, this is like, I'm so thrilled to share this with you all today. I'm filled that you're being converted into the uh, into the ways of the insect. They're awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that was really cool. Interesting. Like, I think it's so weird because, well, for me anyway, I feel like my view of animals is like of in, as individual creatures. But I feel like with eusocial um, organisms, I feel like it almost makes more sense to like think about them as a part of a larger organism. Mm-hmm. because That's the way they the behave term... is so not you know it, it's not like anything else it's really cool would you not consider their parallels with human beings in that regard yeah i guess so yeah on that profound note uh after that long list of ways that animals kill themselves naomi i th- i think you're able to bring a bit of levity into this situation yeah kind of this it's still yeah 
<laughs> kind of. Kind so, of for an episode about death. Yeah. So what I wanted to talk about was playing dead. So this is a couple of different names. Apparent death, playing possum, feigning death. And a more technical term is thanatosis. And another similar technical term, which is called tonic immobility. So basically what this means is when animals go into sort of a state of paralysis and look as if they're dead. So they do it for a variety of reasons. Avoiding predators is one. Another is predation. For example, for predation, there is a fish, a, a cichlid fish called the sleeper cichlid, which is found in Lake Malawi in East Africa. And this fish will lie down on its side and assume a blotchy coloration. And it seems like it's a dead fish, but it lures other scavenger fishes and then it eats it. For defense is kind of what you would think of it more commonly as. For example, playing possum, Virginia opossum is a classic example of an animal that uses this defense mechanism. Another one that I found is the hognose snake. So a threatened individual will roll onto its back and appear to be dead. And I watched a very interesting video of it today where the person who had caused it to have this behavior kept trying to turn it back over and it would just roll back onto its back even though it's like playing dead it's moving (laughs) yeah yeah it's like overacting it also produces a strong sort of smell and actually can excrete like fecal matter and things from its body as well as part of this process i also found an interesting review paper on this by humphreys and ruxton and it was in behavioral ecology and social biology and it is a open source paper if anyone is interested in finding it but it went a couple of reasons why this may work so one is a predator may not want to eat an animal that's already dead which which kind of makes sense and I think is the automatic thing that came to my mind when I would be thinking about it another is that it indicates that this may be an oposmatic animal in that the animal might be toxic or unpalatable in some way Another couple of options that it gave was one that it might be just more difficult for it to eat. So for some animals, they've been able to show this, that in, I think it was crickets and frogs, that once the cricket became immobile, it was difficult for the smaller frogs to like manipulate it into their mouths if they like eat it in one bite. So this is another another option for why this might happen. But yeah, so it, it seems to be pretty taxonomically widespread as well. So it's fairly better studied in invertebrates than vertebrates and the difficulty with studying it in vertebrates is it brings up a lot a lot of ethical issues because you it's a you're studying sort of a predator prey interaction and I think it's more sort of discovered from like anecdotal evidence and in non-predator prey interactions so they can also kind of induce this tonic immobility in organisms but just for example in sharks if you turn a shark upside down you can make it go into tonic immobility in certain species so it is interesting but it's definitely something this review paper kind of went into detail about how it's not fully understood um it's not particularly studied because of some of these difficulties but i think they were optimistic that with improvements in monitoring and camera technology that they may be able to kind of study this in a non like manipulative setting that's really cool. I uh, I was especially amazed by that chiclet. Yeah. I, I didn't realize that it was also used in like other ways. I really thought of it as a classic sort of 
predator-prey mechanism as opposed or as an anti-predator mechanism. But yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, that's a super in, ingenious way to hunt things. So Nick, you want to talk about something that constantly confuses me because it has two names and is in the long list of things that I think are badly named in the animal kingdom. You want to talk about turkey vultures. So answer me this. Are they turkeys? Absolutely not. Are they vultures? Absolutely, yes. Okay, good. Yeah. Unlike the ladybird, it's one of the two things. <laughs> so I wanted to talk a little bit today about my favorite raptor, also my favorite bird overall. I know the night parrot gets a lot of love on this podcast, but um, the, the real bird, the real star of my heart is the turkey vulture. It's common throughout the southern United States all the way down the Americas to the tip of so the southern tip of South America. So in Arizona, they're not there and the, they leave in the winter. It gets a little too cold for them where I grew up. Um, but the first day of spring is usually marked by when you first see the first turkey vulture soaring up in the sky. And soar they do. They're a bird that uses static soaring flight and they move via um, air thermals. So they'll basically lock out their wings in a V-shape and they barely flap at all. You can often see them flying, circling in these thermals for up to half hour, 45 minutes without even flapping their wings once. It, it is pretty difficult for them to get off the ground though. So they do a lot of like heavy flapping and pushing off the ground when they're trying to get going. But once they're up there, they just go. Uh, and that gives them their species name, Cathartes aura. Aura means wind. Uh, so they're sort of known for riding the wind in this way. And Cathartes, for catharsis, um, is a way of uh, bringing things up that can be um, difficult or painful. Well, we'll come back to that in a little bit and why they're named that. Uh, so I, I wanted to talk to them about them today in our death episode, partly because they look like death incarnate. They're, you know, the vultures. They look like they're wearing a big black cape and they have this red gross head that looks like a skull it's it's featherless and it's designed that way because their primary food their only food is carrion they almost never kill their own food so they fly around using their eyes but particularly their sense of smell which is unusual for birds hunting uh, and they are smelling for one special molecule ethyl mercaptan which is a gas produced yeah. in the beginning stages of animal corpse decay so they smell for that they don't actually eat anything putrid so they'll only eat things that are recently dead when they find it they have some really interesting ways of eating so turkey vultures are not so big in as far as the vultures go but they have mutual dependencies with other vultures throughout the americas particularly the king vulture which is as you can probably imagine pretty big but king vultures aren't very good at finding dead things they don't have a very good sense of smell so what they'll do is they'll work together and the turkey vultures will find the carcasses and land at them. And then the king vultures will follow them. And the king vultures have tougher, bigger beaks that can dig into the flesh of bigger animals, things like cows and stuff that have really thick hides. So they can get in and open up the softer parts and then the turkey vultures can eat also. So they sort of help each other out, these different vulture types. But it doesn't stop here. In order to get in there uh, and eat their food in those rotting putrid carcasses, well, sorry, not putrid, in those rotting carcasses, you don't want to get that all over your face. So they don't have any feathers to collect the innards on. 
they can just you know clean off afterwards. The turkey vulture doesn't have many natural predators, especially in in when it's an adult, but uh, it can often run into conflict with bigger animals who are also scavengers. Even in some places, um, like big cats that are looking for something that are pretty hungry can come across a carcass where a turkey vulture is feeding. And turkey vultures, they usually what they do when they find a carcass, it's rare. So they gorge themselves. They'll eat as much as they can in one sitting. And then if they've just finished a healthy meal and a, you know, a fox or something comes along and threatens them, they have one main defense against this sort of encounter. What they'll do is they'll take one look at that thing that's come in and threatening them and they'll just vomit all over it. And that is both really, really, really disgusting um, because they're vomiting rotting flesh. And uh, also it has stomach acid in it, so it stings. And then finally, they've lightened themselves up so they can take off and fly away. I just, the efficiency and and the sort of like, yeah, it's like think. It's like a mafia hit. Gotta go. (laughs) You'd think that all of these things would lead to like a really sort of horrifying, gross looking creature, but they're quite elegant, uh, especially when they're flying. And, and, oh, the the Cathartes, again, this Cathartes aura, Cathartes comes from that vomiting defense. But really, they're quite, they're like spirits of the wind. So they do sound like quite amazing scavengers, but they're not the only scavengers that exist, are they? No, so I wanted to look up a little bit about scavengers because, as Nick mentioned, it's eating dead things, uh, so eating dead animals. Generally, it means eating something that hasn't been predated upon or you didn't personally predate upon it. There aren't that many examples of obligate scavengers in vertebrates because it is quite high high energy. Vultures are a classic example, but, but even then they sometimes do predate. Invertebrates, there's there are more scavengers examples, so burying beetles, blowflies, yellow jackets, they're all good examples. For vertebrates, it's often kind of combined with predation. So other large vertebrates might be more kind of opportunistic scavengers. So hyenas, jackals, lions, different things like that. If they come across a a carcass or if they see an animal that they can maybe muscle out of the way at a carcass, they they will, you know scavenge as well which is interesting and something as well that isn't necessarily scavenging but is to do with the breaking down of of organic and decaying matter is decomposers and detritivores so they are really important in ecosystems as are scavengers because they kind of consume dead animals and they break them back down into to be used into the recycled into the ecosystem so something actually that i just found out today the difference between decomposers and detritivores is that decomposers so they're they're often used interchangeably but actually detritivores ingest and digest dead matter internally but decomposers actually directly absorb nutrients through external chemical or biological processes so say for example that would be more like mushrooms and fungi for my my final point that i wanted to make about scavengers was i wanted to talk a little bit about t-rex and so this is something that's kind of what i thought was sort of a a controversial debate in paleontology the whether t-rexes are scavengers or whether they're predators but actually i was reading an interesting article in the national geographic it was by brian switek and basically his take on the the whole thing as a paleontologist was that actually wasn't really that contentious 
that it was sort of blown up by the media that actually they kind of did both. So that that's kind of a, a commonly accepted idea in paleontology is that they probably were more li- most likely predators, but that like a lot of common predators today that I mentioned, they would have scavenged sort of opportunistically. And I think actually the the person who put forward the idea of scavenging in T-Rex even sort of said this themselves, that they would have probably not have only scavenged, but it was kind of ignored when like it was talked about in the media and things. Are you saying that media misrepresented science? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. This is new. <laughs> um, I so, Yeah, I suppose it seems very uncontroversial. Why wouldn't they just sort of have a nibble at what's going on? Yeah. Crocodiles do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I think it was as well the the person who came up with the idea of the T Rex as a scavenger, I think kind of ran with it a little bit as well. That he sort of made this idea, and then there wasn't really all that much to back it up, but kind of just went with it. Thank you, Nose, for telling us all about scavengers. I want to talk about something which might be a scavenger's worst nightmare. Are you guys familiar with biological immortality? Only in the phrase. Benjamin Button Jellyfish. That is also called perhaps the Immortal Jellyfish, is that right? I think that's where, yeah, it's a work. So immortality in a biological sense does not mean you'd live forever. What it would tend to mean is that you won't die of old age like we could. Uh, There are many different ways that you might die of old age uh, that we usually... So even in death certificates now, they will not put old age. They will always give a reason, usually pneumonia or heart failure, things like that. Um, Elephants, do you know how elephants die of old age? No. Their teeth run out. Yeah. (gasps) It's really bleak. Their teeth uh, grind away over time and eventually they can't eat and they will die. So that is a way that an elephant would die of old age. But interestingly, there are certain animals that basically the older they get, it doesn't increase their rate of mortality. So their rate of mortality stays the same no matter what their age is. But the longer they live, it means that rate of mortality still exists, so they they will eventually die of another reason. So there are a few animals that can do this. Uh, One of them is lobsters. So there's actually evidence that they become more fertile with age. The older ones are more fertile than the younger ones, and they don't slow down or get weaker. But as they get older, they are more likely to die uh, when they shell molt because there's a bigger shell around them. So that does increase their death, death risk in, in that way. But things like, do you remember that cave salamander I talked about a while ago? Yeah, the one that doesn't that didn't move for seven years. Yeah, so they could live over 100 years in the wild. And it appears that, yeah, it's not old age that's killing them. It would either be predators or illness or things like that. There's even evidence now that things like the naked mole rat do not face increased mortality risk as they get older. There is some flaws in this that some people say that well, part of the reason that it plateaus at a certain age is as you get older, the num- the risk gets so high that there isn't really an increased risk, but it's still a very high risk as you get older. So even though there's a plateau and that there's no increased mortality risk as you get older, that you are still quite likely to die because you're old. It's most common with single celled organisms where there's something called the Hayflick limit. And the Hayflick limit is the number of times that a cell can divide. For some cells, they have no Hayflick limit. They can divide forever, which is quite amazing. But the one you were talking about, the immortal jellyfish, does something which no other animal does. It replenishes its cells after sexual reproduction. So basically, it makes its cells young again and starts again. 
So theoretically, they could live forever if they had enough food and no predators. But they're a tiny little animal. They're, they're, um, the Turritopsis dornii is only five millimeters wide. It's a tiny little jellyfish. It's native to the Caribbean, but you can now find it all over the world, living for as long as it can. Well. So, yeah. So I thought that might be quite a nice way to end this episode with an animal that perhaps has no end. But like I said, unfortunately, we do. Uh, we will be back next week, though, where I've managed to get them to talk about insects again, because next week we'll be talking all about Hymenoptera, which includes things like the bees, the wasps and the ants, which is very exciting. But for this week's episode, it has reached the end. Do not mourn us. Just join us again next week. We'll be back to talk about more nature. But for this week, it's a goodbye from Nick. Goodbye. It's a goodbye from Naomi. Goodbye. And it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Well, if you do get your moths from a German supermarket, I think that means they're called uh, Little Octora. I hope you leave that full silence in the episode. <laughs>